0: You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard.
1: Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie.
2: Hi, folks. This is Aaliyah Gaskins. And today we are joined by Denise Everson, and she is a partner at Cure Architects, and she also leads community engagement at ThinkBox. And so we're here to talk to her all things about her work, about community engagement, and what it means to be a true community advocate. I'm sure we're going to touch on housing and some of the other issues she's engaged in, but just really excited to have her on the show. So welcome, Denise. Thank you. So glad to be
1: here. I'm so hyped. So I was excited when I very first met you, Denise, because we were supposed to have a call with Thinkbox and I came into it just thinking it was going to be about entrepreneurship, which I love. It's near and dear to my heart, but you brought the heat and you started talking about housing and lead design and architecture and planning and economic development and public health. And so I'm so, so excited for this conversation. I mean, you have many different facets to what you do and who you are. How did you get involved in this work? Like what led you to be here right now? So
0: my path has not necessarily been a straight one, but I think it's been an intentional one. I think that from childhood, I've always had this creativity inside me that I wanted to let out. I've always also been able to connect with people. People um, from teachers, not just my classmates and friends, but specifically people of different generations, generations that preceded me. So being from Decatur, Georgia, you can hear this wonderful twang I have. (laughs) Yes,
2: I was going to ask where you're from.
0: (laughs) I'm from Decatur, Georgia. Decatur, where it's greater, they would say. (laughs) I am... And have been a lover of all things creative and all things artistic. I went to my love of art, my love of um, creativity led me to go to Hampton to study architecture, which I loved. It was a transformative experience for me. I left Hampton and went to Georgetown to get a public policy degree. Because one of my architecture mentors, his name is R.L. Brown. He is one of the leading architects in the nation. He gave me my first architecture job, but he also taught me the importance of being on the side of the table that you hire architects, not being on the side where you get hired. Mm -hmm. So that led me to enter the realm of public policy at Georgetown, where I focused on housing And education, which are both near and dear to my heart. So the collaboration between the connectivity between housing and education is something that as an activist, as a housing advocate and activist, it drives me because I understand very clearly that linkage between the two. So that's how I got to D.C. I stayed and um, I worked at one of the district agencies and met some wonderful guys from a an energy services company. I had not heard of energy services com- companies, but I met them and around the same time I was getting my lead, my lead um, accreditation. So it was just kismet. I met the guys, the co-founders of ThinkBox and we formed some really great relationships. And um, when I left, when I got the opportunity to leave the government and start my own business, they offered some opportunities that I could not pass up. Yeah, that's I love awesome. That.
2: So Denise, housing and education are two very big issues right now. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic where we're talking about sheltering in place, we're talking about what's happening with a massive number of people who are at risk of being evicted. Education, I'm not sure anybody knows what's going on and what's the best process, what should happen next, when should our schools open. So how are you bringing this creativity and passion that you have to these two big issues right now?
0: Part of my creativity extends to encouraging people to fall back on tried and true methods of communication, such as mailing letters and doing phone calls, and just making sure that you maintain those social connections, those human interactions. Just because we're we're sheltering in place does not mean that we're not connecting with people. In that same vein, this time inside during COVID-19 has given me the great opportunity to reach out on LinkedIn to different leaders across the globe who I have always wanted to reach out to or talk to, but did not have the time. So I think that this time in has given me an opportunity to just reach out and to connect. And so when I've had thoughts about housing and I've had thoughts about education um, to be able to have to bounce those ideas off of proven leaders who specialize in those two spaces. One thing that I've done that I that I knew was possible for me to do was to fundraise through an organization that I'm a part of in the District of Columbia. I fundraised in the spring to support the mayor's uh, fund for technology and equipment and hotspots for those students living in Ward 7 and 8 in particular who don't have technology and don't have access to this online schooling. So one thing that I found that I could do that was impactful and immediate was to fundraise, which I did. And my group, my chapter, the organization that I'm a part of, we were successful in assisting with that mayoral fund to help students across across the river get access gain access to equipment and hotspots because that's that's very important we just some people some communities those especially that are underserved don't have the basic the basic equipment and i so feel like those I think,
1: were um, those were conversations that have been going on for years. The smart cities, the putting fiber in cities and Google coming in and the, you know, fi- putting fiber throughout communities and people didn't take action on it. Okay, it's easy for have- us to say we need Internet access for everybody. Right. But what does that really look like for the people who don't have it? Like, how does that impact their day to day activities?
0: Well, two things. The access, the equi- let's start with the equipment. Most underserved communities have access to sell your to, to smartphones in particular, but not necessarily to desktop or laptop computers. Mm-hmm. That is a hard thing in and of itself, because if you have multiple students in one household and only one phone, then what do you do? And how can you really effectively
1: learn? I didn't even the think phone? about so- the number mm-hmm. of people on one phone. Sorry. So
0: hardware is important. Having it, having individual laptops for each student in the home is important so that they can then hop on to a network. Okay, so you got hardware, now what do you do? You need a network where people can hop on. So both providing the tablets and the equipment is important, but also providing the hotspot so that students can hop on. I live in Ward 7 and my Wi-Fi is not good. My Wi-Fi is not good because of where I live. It's not it's not a high. It's just it's just really my zip code that is impacting my Wi-Fi quality, which is horrible. I'm getting
1: angry. You see me like (laughs) rubbing my temples like I'm so frustrated right now. And yeah,
2: but but it's true because I mean, from a public health standpoint, Katie, how many times have we sat here and said where you live impacts your health? where you live impacts your opportunities and outcomes. And I think we don't often think about it from the sense of, you know, we think about it in terms of your access to a physical school location, but hearing about like your location and Impacts your ability to be able to even just sign online to get the information you need to do well in school, whether that's school virtually or just, I mean, imagine if you had a project you needed to do when we were in physical buildings and you needed to do research and not having the internet connection to be able to find that information. Um, I don't know it's something that I feel is like near and dear to my heart growing up. I went to a school, I ended up getting a scholarship, and the school provided us all with laptops. And so I was fortunate to have this piece of like technology and equipment, but then when I got home, I didn't have an internet connection. And so I still had to get to school early, use the public computer lab, try and pull together my reports last minute. I didn't have a printer at home. So like everything I had, I had one piece, but I didn't have all the pieces I needed to actually make it a usable and functional thing.
1: And it just further, it further puts people behind. And then when they get behind, we then stigmatize them to say, you're not smart. You didn't, why didn't you try hard enough? Why didn't you excel in high school, college? It's just really, really frustrating so how did the program like where is it now are there needs like donations or can it be replicated or are other communities doing that where does that stand
0: i don't i'm not necessarily aware what other communities are doing I do being from atlanta i know that the city of atlanta and specifically dekalb county in in georgia they are working very hard to distribute laptops to its students. But those kindergarten through second graders, they're gonna be the last ones to receive laptops. So in the meantime, in between time, I don't know what they're going to do into to make up for that for that digital digital divide. In the district, we do we are lucky to have a mayoral led fund where we as citizens within this area can donate to so that equipment can be distributed quickly and efficiently to schools who have identified students in need. So we have the vehicle here in the district to get that equipment out. We have the infrastructure in the district and the networks and the connections to, to deploy not only the laptops but the hotspots. So I think we need to continue to um, hopefully major corporations will invest into into the students in the district. But we need to continue to support existing efforts so that we won't have to waste time replicating and recreating the
2: wheel. Denise, so another piece of your background is your passion and your work around community engagement and i'd love to pivot there for a second what are some ideas you have for how we get more women of color on the decision making side of this work and really pushing forward some of these policies and ideas so like you said so that we're not recreating the wheel every time but we're actually changing the systems that make it difficult for people to thrive
0: so i have a two-part answer. The first part is I went to grad school to get a policy degree so that I can have the credentials to sit in the room and to say that I am a policymaker. So that's the first thing. But I was the only Black full-time person in my entire class in 2005, from 2005 to 2007 at Georgetown. So we need to encourage our ninth and 10th graders to think about public policy so that they can in, enter those trajectories to that will lead to masters and doctoral um, degrees in public policy that's the first thing and for those of us who already have policy degrees and policy experience sometimes you have decades of experience and you don't need the degree but you can still lend your experience or lend your academic credentials to community leaders and prop them up with information that you learn. So share your knowledge, share the resources that you gain in all of these policy institutions that we've, we've visited and that we've set in as students, but share those tools that we learn so that we can equip our contemporaries, our brothers and sisters in activism so that they can then be conversing in matters of policy. So it, when they get to the table they can sound like and know what the, sound like they know what they're talking about but really know what they talk, they're talking about now.
1: yeah i love that i'm like spe- i'm i haven't been like silent speechless in a while on the show just because my wheels are turning like there's just so much need and then you're you're highlighting so much and then my anger clearly <laughs> laying on top of that But what does that look like? So when you say that, what is that a, hey, I mean, we're, it's COVID. We're going to do a Zoom call. We have people like Denise on the call that can talk about vocabulary, how to get involved. Like what, how can we bring that to action? Like, what does that really look like right now?
0: So I remember two things, working with a community, a local community who, they, they had a resident council, and they still have a resident council, which is a group of volunteer leaders. And helping that resident council be familiar with Robert's Rules of Order, for example, using my knowledge of that, to, of parliamentary procedures, to just let them know that these are the things that you say, these are the things that you do, this is how you operate a meeting. Because once you learn how to do this, you go into boardrooms across the globe, and this is how mm-hmm. you run things. So sharing even little bits of knowledge, such as parliamentary procedure, I think, can be helpful in further furthering the advocacy of our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in activism, like I stated earlier. Um, and just sharing resources. the Some things we know we take for granted that we know, but you'll be surprised when they come up like grant writing some of us know how to write grants so we can share that and help others write grants to get funding for their organization these housing organizations these organizations that are focused on STEM education and wellness and workforce development so we can share what we know with people who are fighting the
2: good fight something you're raising for me is I mean, a lot of companies are now are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think too often people pick one word instead of all three. And if we're just bringing more people to the table, but we're not actually shifting power by helping people, you know, make decisions at that pay- table, navigate that table, shift policies, then we're not actually changing anything. We're creating a space where we've invited folks, but then folks don't feel in a safe or a brave space where they can actually engage in cha- in making that change.
0: I'm almost over it, but not quite. So I'm like a five minute, I'm like five minutes from being over, over <laughs> it all.
1: Because I'm so tired.
0: I'm so tired of sitting on calls with national organizations that are talking about. I am in the American Institute of Architects. They were charged by Whitney Young in 1968 to diversify. (laughs) And here we are, 50 plus years later, and the numbers of within the American Institute of Architecture is dismal. It's absolutely horrible. Less than 1% of the members are Black women architects. Less than, I want to say, less than 3% are Black men. So look, they've been talking about it for decades. Nobody's doing anything. And yes, the lynching of George Floyd has moved the needle, and I'm happy that it has. We just have to take this time and not waste the not waste a crisis. This uh, lady that I that I love, I listen to her often. She said, don't waste a crisis. So let's not waste a crisis. Let's take this momentum and, not, and make as people who are plugged in, into the policies, plugged into the power, we need to make sure that people just don't let this go by. This is not going to be a spring fashion that you can just wear. It's not equity. It's not something you can put on and take off. Diversity is not something that fits only certain shoe sizes. Inclusion is not something that is to be put on a shelf and looked at. They, they, those are all action-oriented behaviors. So a reckoning needs to happen within this context. Some some real talk needs to happen. Some changes to boards of directors needs to happen. A change to boards of governors needs to happen. So I am like, let me see your board. While, while we're having a conversation about equity, diversity, and inclusion, let me see your le- your senior leadership. Send me a screenshot of the of the headshots. Yeah. Send me a screenshot <laughs> of the headshots because I want to see who, yes. who's in the room talking about diverse equity, diversity, and, and inclusion. I'm like, I'm I'm not over it, but I'm five minutes from being <laughs> over it. I'm, it's just it's too much. It's I too feel much. that it's too much and not it's too much. It's too much. And it's not enough all in the same time.
1: Yeah. I've never heard it. Yeah. Gosh, I'm like, so I, I, I'm, I, I want to go like, I don't know, like can't not do campaign, but like get a rally together. And like, we're like, no, we're going to do shit. Like we're going to make things happen. We're not just talking because I feel like that's the other thing too, is we get up here and we pontificate and we talk about what needs to be done or the disparities. And I'm, we can't just keep putting plans together that are going to sit on a shelf or we can't just keep coming to the table and saying, hey, this is the problem. I had somebody recently talk about you know, some work I used to do and I was like, I was literally saying the same things when I first started after grad school in 2009. Like nothing has changed since 2009 and it's so frustrating. So like how... What does that action piece feel like and look like for you?
0: So for me, the action piece looks like two things. It looks like being on national calls and be, and coming off of mute, and and speaking my piece, and being very intentional about the words that I use, but unapologetic. So, like I said, I'm from a city where the where the mayor's, you know, Atlanta's mayor. Her name is Keisha. So I I bring the spirit, I bring the spirit of Keisha with me when I go into boardrooms and on Zoom calls, whether those Zoom calls bring me into boardrooms. But number one, I think it's important that you speak the truth. Number two, I think it's important that you be that you serve on the boards. If you can get in, you need to fit in. You need to
2: like- be in the room. I think that to me is what I'm hoping is different about this moment. I cannot tell you the number of calls and conversations conversations I've had with other other black women where we've constantly vented and voiced our frustration about the lack of leadership positions the lack of upward mobility the lack of opportunities all of these things I think many of us have worked for very nice and wonderful white women but also felt very smothered or felt like there's just no room for us to actually have our voice heard and I think we're at a moment where people are like tired of this shit. And I think they're speaking up and saying the things that have always been on our mind, but that you just can't hold in anymore. People are tired of having to show up at work one way and then go home and be another way. And I think some of that is not just, what's happening in our country, but it's also the fact that in a virtual world, I can't switch back and forth. I turn on my Zoom call and I have to be who I was at home. You got to see all of me because I'm trying to navigate so many other pieces at the same time that I used to be able to segment and compartmentalize in order to show up at work.
0: I think that's very important that you that you say that. I think it's I think it is incumbent upon us to call people on their mess. So I you and I all of us have been in situations where people say, "Oh, you speak so eloquently," <laughs> and I'm wow. like, "Because I can make a sub, I can make the subject and the verb agree. Is that is that <laughs> what we're doing? Or I can put ly on the end of of certain words? Okay, so let's not do that. So that's <laughs> the first thing: call people on their stuff. And when my white girlfriends have called me as of late, wh- what I have noticed is they are calling with, they're calling with guilt that I don't have. Um, And they are calling saying, I need you to help me. And I'm like, I can't help you. I can't help you because I have to put my mask on first before helping others. (laughs) So I can't help you. I can't help you. I'll be here and I can listen to you, but I can't help you. Because if you had cancer, you would be on Google and WebMD looking up ways to help. So right now you got cancer. Think about it that way. Get on get online and look it up and see how you can help. Read uh some books. Uh, read some articles. Do your research as to how you could be less racist or how you can be aware of your hidden spots. Mm-hmm. Or re- read about redlining. Read the color of law. Like read read some good stuff so yeah. that when you and I converse, we'll have some something
1: to talk about. Yeah. I am so, okay, so we did not hit on the entrepreneur piece or some of the things that we wanted to talk about in the beginning of the episode, but that means you're welcome back to have a part two, three, four, you seven.
2: bring me back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need you back on for just like a one-on-one, how to get your shit together and how to call out the mess. Part
1: two. Yes, let's do it. You
0: can bring me on anytime. I am so very thrilled, and I will make time to be here for you guys. I love
1: it. I love it. So, what's next for you? I mean, clearly, you're you're amazing. You are you have you know you're putting people in check, and I love it. Not checking boxes. Um, so, what's next?
0: So, I'm working on some really creative um, projects with ThinkBox under the Sustainable Communities Project we're working to to impact communities in a very positive way with long-term measurable results, specifically in four areas, wellness, STEAM education, entrepreneurship, and workforce development. So I am looking forward to pivoting to the virtual world that we are about to be in for years to come and transforming the energy that I have in these public meetings that I usually put together transforming that energy into some virtual energy and and doing the same thing, but just on a virtual platform, doing the same impact for work that I've been doing for years with communities and help helping communities build, but just taking it to a virtual platform. So I'm in the process of building that out now. And I'm so very excited because I know that more people are going to be able to join a virtual experience than they would have been for an in person experience. For sure.
2: Well, I think my next step is I'm inviting myself to one of your virtual experiences. Cause <laughs> I want to learn from you and just I I want to learn some of the actions you're putting in place because I'm going to start using them. I will always give you credit though. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: footnote credit footnote credit is important. So yes. Yes, always. So how do people get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to connect?
0: So, the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn, and you can find me at R Denise Everson on LinkedIn and um, R Denise Everson on Instagram as well. Oh, are we
1: Instagram friends? I don't think we are. We're about to be, but.
2: Oh my gosh, I'm about to add you right now. <laughs> well, thank you, Denise. This is the first of many, many conversations.
0: I look so forward to it. Thank you ladies for the invite and feel free to reach out when you have
1: need. I'll be there. Oh, it's going down. Don't you worry.
0: It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps?
1: Okay, Aaliyah. I, I thought it was funny in going back and listening to the episode where I was speechless a lot because I'm typically not. But I think just the, the structure and the guidance and the advice on how to get involved and what we addressed in terms of connectivity and communities and disparities and engagement was just, it was a great conversation.
2: Yes. I think it was clear that I just wanted to transport myself into Denise's living room. I wanted to (laughs) learn from her. I just, I felt like a sponge. Like she dropped so much wisdom on us. I, I'm still processing all of it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I also stole when there's one point where she's like, in the meantime, I think she says it at the end, in the meantime and in between time, and I've literally been saying that for like a week in my head. I don't really talk to anybody because of COVID. So I haven't had a chance to say it publicly, but I'm going to use it and embrace my inner Denise. In terms of like the strategy and the guidance, we're all about action. I think she gave some great advice. And I think that the counter... Conversation that we need to have is for those people in the meetings, in the Zoom calls, at the boardroom table. When people speak up and say something, affirm that and don't discredit it. Like that's almost your duty and your job to now elevate the voices that are at the table. Yes.
2: Amen. So two things I took away and I want to follow up on that point because I think oftentimes you and I get this question of, well, what does it look like to lead diverse teams or to engage new voices at the table? And I think that piece of just simple affirmation, acknowledging an idea when it is stated, not speaking over it, not waiting until somebody else says it for you to feel like it has enough validity to move forward with it, but fully listening and saying, I hear you. And if I don't understand, ask questions about it and be curious enough to want to understand that idea more. So totally agree. At the same time, I also want to acknowledge something she said that I think was like personal for me about the actions I need to do at that table. I think she challenged all of us that when you are there, don't just take up space, speak up. And I recently heard a speech by Tamika Mallory. She's a civil rights activist. And she said her mom- Shout out Zeke. Yes, she's in the background, also speaking up right now. Um, but she said that her mom always used to tell her, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And when I think of Denise and when I think of the charge Denise gave us, I think part of being at the table is to be ready for the conversation.
1: Absolutely. And I saw this, this thing a while ago. I think it was at a Smithsonian event I went to, actually at the um, National Museum of African American History and Culture And so there were rules of engagement on the table for discussion. And one of the things I really appreciated was that they called out and said, no piggybacking. So the whole, I need to speak after you, I need to, you know, add to what you said, like just lift up the other person's voice. Like you can say, as Aaliyah said, and then take it in a different direction. But I feel like there are rules where you can you can almost give somebody that validity in the room because a lot of times people think that they're helping by, you know, piggybacking or restating what you said or mansplaining, whatever that might be, but you're doing a disservice. You're minimizing that person's power and that person's voice when you do that. And I think, I mean, that's just my ask through and through is that when people show up and when they're talking about these issues that we mentioned in the, in the episode, to lift the voice in a meaningful way and then maybe have a follow-up conversation like, hey, I like what you're saying. Who else do you need to meet? That was great. You know, offline, I, I really appreciated what you had to say. I respect what you have to say. Who else can I connect you with? Like challenge yourself to put other people in touch with three more people. I mean, reach out to Christina Francis from our previous episode if you need, like, the cheat code on how to do that, because she is, like, amazing at connecting people.
2: Something we often talk about on this show is how your unconscious bias shows up, and I think that's also a part of being able to acknowledge what other people say, because I've often been at tables where I've had people affirm what I've said, but they add something to it, like, oh, Aaliyah's so articulate, or Aaliyah's so smart, she's so brilliant, she's so intelligent, and... I appreciate the compliment, but <laughs> I think when we unpack that, oftentimes we know that a lot of that comes from the perceptions we have of how, you know, how black, look, how, <laughs> we are a-, over me, a young man talking <laughs> over me. <laughs> but people have assumptions of how a black woman is supposed to sound and what she's supposed to say and how she's supposed to act. And so I think sometimes we also have to be aware of part of affirming people is not to add your, like, I don't even know what the word is, but not to explain away how they speak and how they present.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that's it. I mean, I don't want to restate any (laughs) of what Denise had to say in the episode. I think she's an amazing talented, awesome woman. And I would encourage all of our listeners to engage, get in touch and see how you can support her, the work that she's doing, the work that she's affiliated with. And uh, we will keep pushing one step at a time. Sounds good. I'll be right here with you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on our website, on iTunes, as well as Spotify. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.